This is Becky Kling with Annotations, and I'm here today with Cordelia Ross to talk about her discovery of an unexpected archive. Cordelia earned her PhD from the University of California, Davis, and she's currently an instructor of English at the University of Alabama. Hi, Cordelia. Thanks for joining us today and continuing Annotations' discussion about literary archives. Hey, Becky. I'm happy to be here and talking with you once again. Great. So just to recap, in our first episode of Unexpected Archives, Jennifer spoke with Lindsay about her archive on feminist media activism, which was related to her dissertation research. So Cordelia, is the archive you'll be talking about today also related to your dissertation? Um, yes, but it's currently evolving into hopefully what might be my next project, which is related, of course, because I think that's how junior scholars work. But Hopefully it will turn into something even bigger. Awesome. So just so our listeners can keep up, maybe you can fill us in on what your dissertation was about. All right. So in previous episodes, I've mentioned little things. So I'm the cave person. I'm the one who does Middle Ages studies and looks at caves and sort of talks about identity in the medieval period. So for me... My archive is 12th century, and I'm looking at 12th century English literature, and it wasn't really an archive to begin with. (laughs) I'm not really Mm -hmm. sure it's an archive now in traditional (laughs) terms. (laughs) Right. Um, but I guess to be clear, um, the, uh, my dissertation revolved around 12th and 13th century literary representations of caves, real or imaginary, as they related to ideas of Englishness. Um, basically, I discovered that prior to the early modern period, when imperial Britain was starting to take over the world, uh, there was still a concept of what it meant to be English, but it was really re- closely related to the land, and I think that's still true. Um, The idea of living on the island is incredibly important to people in England right now, and it was true in the Middle Ages. And so I was thinking about that, I was thinking about caves and the heart of the land, and what does it mean to be familiar with the heart of the land, and does that have some sort of purpose in their writing? Because there's actually a ton of caves in this period in the history writing, so that's where I started. Interesting. So caves were a big part of English culture then. Um, sounds like the proper English folk are like cavemen at heart then. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's no such thing as cavemen, actually, but um, not right. in the way that the movies depict. Uh, actually, caving, splunking, potholing, what they call it, is started in England in around the 18th century. So caves have always been important to English society, and still a lot of the major cave research and cave activity and amateur cave groups are still very much located in England, which I discovered when I went to visit. So that's really cool and it's been maintained from 12th century forwards. Wow, that's crazy. It's hard to imagine caving without uh, flashlights and electricity. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I would be really nervous that my my torch would go out. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So when you got into researching this topic, did you have an archive in mind when you started, or is there such a thing for this kind of topic? No. (laughs) All I knew is that I had two texts that had a cave in them. I had Beowulf, of course, where, you know, Grendel lives in his mirror with his mother, and it's kind of like a subterranean lake. 
which is mm-hmm. fascinating and I love, but I don't do old English studies, really. There wasn't really anyone at Davis who was doing that at the time, so I needed to jump forward a bit. I'd taken um, an old French class, and there was this cave in one of the texts I read, which was a retelling of the Aeneid, but in old French. And I started kind of there, but then realized I'm not doing French, so where could I go? And then I kind of panicked. (laughs) I was like, oh no, what am I going to do? So I actually went to talk to one of my professors who ended up being on my dissertation committee because he kind of also works with things that are bizarre or unusual or fantastical in the Middle Ages. And I told him what I was thinking about what I wanted to do. And I liked the idea of working with unusual spaces and unusual creatures and thinking about ideas of identity. And he was like, you know, do you know the story about the green children of Woolpit? And I looked at him and I was like, what? He was like, yeah, it's actually a really big story for those of us working in this period. And so he directed me to William Anubra, who was a historian in the 12th century, who wrote this account of two children, a boy and a girl, who were discovered in kind of a pit. So there there were these pits outside of the area that were dug to trap wolves, I think. But one of the stories, there's two accounts of this, actually says that they came out of a giant cave system. So there's some ambiguity there. Somehow they came out of the ground. And they were green, Mm -hmm. and they couldn't talk, and they didn't know how to eat English food, and they weren't wearing proper clothing. And so I started there, and it's a really bizarre story, and it's actually still very important to Woolpit, England today. If you go to the town, there's actually a sign that, you know, the equivalent of welcome to Woolpit, but it actually has two children holding hands. So it's still an important story to them. Huh. That's a really fascinating story. I wonder about the kids being green, too. It almost sounds like something out of ancient aliens, or it's an early depiction of otherworldly creatures. Actually, there's a, um, a scholar who has written an interesting article claiming that it was a form of malnutrition at the time, and it can make you look green. Now, of course, we can't prove this, but it's an interesting article. Um, there were refugees in the area at the time, and Flemish refugees. So they wouldn't, if if these children were Flemish, they wouldn't have spoken English. If they were malnourished in this way, they might have been green. Who knows? Hmm. Maybe that's the impetus for the story, or maybe it's just um, another version of the changeling story of you know the fairies dropping off a kid and taking a kid. <laughs> right. That makes me think of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight too. I guess the medievalists like their green people. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. They do. (laughs) That's really interesting. So uh, you mentioned that this was something that was written about by historians. Is this story believed to actually be an historical event? Well, that's how they wrote about it. Um, William Anubra was writing the history of England, and uh, English affairs is how it's translated. So he's claiming this is a historical event, and he actually does this. uh, It's kind of a stereotypical move. Like, I know this sounds fantastical, but I've heard it from many, many reliable sources, so I think it's important to put here. A lot of historians did this for more fantastical stories um, at the time. They would have this, like, weird moment where they're like, I know it sounds not real, but I assure you I've heard it from reliable sources, so I should record this as a historical event. And so that's sort of how I I branched off, and from there, there was a footnote, and it told me about another story of children, um, subterranean children, so I went to that story, and then from there, I saw another footnote that had another story about a cave um, in another history text, and that's sort of how I created my archive, was just reading one, looking at the footnotes, and sort of seeing how different texts sort of had stories related to one another. 
Wow, fascinating. So once you found all these sources, was it hard to find access to it? Oh, boy. So, I mean, a lot of these things uh, have been translated and published, or I could find some sort of older print text. But in terms of the original sources, the manuscripts, that was a little more difficult. I actually had to get funding from the department, the English department at Davis, to go on a research trip. And I did two research trips, one to the Czech Republic because there was an international congress on speleology, which is cave studies, just to sort of do background work, finding out what people knew, what stories people knew. Actually, people in England are very familiar with uh, the Green Children's story, and that's not true here in America. So it was really important for me to actually sort of kind of understand what, what people knew. And then my other trip was to England, where I actually was able to go to some libraries and look at some of these manuscripts that were 12th and 13th century manuscripts. And what I really wanted to do was look at the marginalia, which are notes in the margins. So when we publish a text, they publish the Latin, and then they publish sometimes an English translation. I'm lucky enough that one of my texts has a bilingual. Left hand is Latin, right hand is English. But they don't publish the notes in the margins. And so I really wanted to see who was reading these texts, what notes were they making, were there illustrations? Sometimes marginalia are like little doodles, because yeah, people in the Middle Ages would doodle while they were reading these things, because oftentimes they were reading them as sort of an educational experience, so it's just like us when we were sitting in lecture in college and kind of getting bored and needing to doodle to keep our minds on track, and so I wanted to see what was in there. And then also, one of the caves that I was working with is actually a real cave um, in... Castleton, England, which is a bit north, and it's a giant cave. It's actually called the, it was called the Devil's Arse in the Middle Ages. It's now called uh-huh. um, Peak Cavern. And uh, it, what happens is it's a, it's, it has a water system in it, and when it rains, as the water drains after the rain, um, it will make sucking noises that sound like flatulence. So it was called oh my the gosh. Devil's Arse. <laughs> and there's a lot of stories written about it. Um, and so that's, I wanted to go see it. I wanted to see what it looked like in the landscape. It's in a medieval town. The castle above it is in ruins, but was built in the, I think actually maybe in the 11th century. It was in the doomsday, but, um, doomsday account. And um, so I, I guess my archive is twofold. It was the manuscripts, but it was also these actual physical places. And uh, <laughs> going to the British Library and the Cambridge Libraries is kind of like, making you sign away your soul (laughs) I had to have so many sources of documentation I had to have so many ways to prove that I very much was a scholar from a legit institution and while it's not impossible to do at all it was quite simple once I understood what I needed to do but it would have really sucked had I arrived and not had a note from my advisor verifying that this is who I was and what I wanted to do and that I had had experience working with manuscripts so I understood don't touch them without you know proper protection don't crack their spine don't don't do all the things you shouldn't do with a delicate text and I also knew how to decipher the letters which can be very difficult you know they're not written it doesn't look like a computer print (laughs) right yeah I know a little bit about trying to decipher handwriting from archival research and spending an hour just to find out that uh, some Victorianist has been writing a note to invite someone else to dinner for for steak. <laughs> it can be a, a lot of work to to try to make sense of it, but I don't even know about the Latin. That's a whole other layer to add on to it. 
Yeah, it's kind of hard while you're trying to sit there and you're like, okay, I need to translate this in my head and write it down. And it can take a long time and you're only allowed to be there for so many hours, particularly where I was, was the special, special room. And it opens late and closes early. So you don't, I didn't have much time. Wow. So what was it like once you actually got to view the materials? Did you find any interesting medieval doodles or marginalia that are particularly noteworthy? Well, I think just being able to open this text, this text that I had been working with for years at this point, at least two or three years, and to just see someone's handwriting, someone who had written this down, and the texts I were looking at, some of them were what might be called uh, copy texts, like they were, they were not meant for a fancy person, they're just quickly done, but some of them were beautiful. They were clearly meant from someone with money who paid for them, and just that experience of seeing them, seeing what it means to see the vellum. Vellum is made out of animal skin, and so it's not paper, and just being able to smell, it's pungent. When you open these manuscripts, it's like walking into a barn. Oh my and gosh. sometimes you can even see the veins on the pages. And wow. So it's a very physical experience, and which was really cool because a lot of my stories are about animals coming out of these caves. And so in a weird way, it was interesting to open the manuscript and having, you know, an animal smell waft at me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, now, now I go look for the text about the oxen coming out of the cave. Uh-huh. Um, so that was a really weird experience. <laughs> I don't know. I just think it made me appreciate what I was doing. Um, and it was really interesting for me to see which of the texts I was working on were clearly popular. It became clear to me that one text I was working on about St. Patrick's Purgatory was widely read because it had notes. All the, I saw about three or four different manuscripts of it because, you know, there were many multiple manuscripts of certain texts. And this one had multiple. One of my others only had one manuscript. And so I only kind of see that one. But it was really cool seeing that this one a lot of people took a bunch of notes on, and they were really just making references to biblical passages, so they were clearly reading it with um, religious studies in mind. But it just reinforced that I'm doing something that people were doing so many centuries ago, and to see their notes and to see how interested they were in them really just brought home that what I'm doing isn't obscure it's not dead I'm continuing what people have done for centuries and that was really cool um, I enjoyed it that's awesome I can't uh, fathom the animal smells will last for centuries <laughs> yeah it, it is interesting and it's different per manuscript a manuscript that was really expensive and well done was very well preserved so it didn't smell that bad but you yeah. know one of the more uh, quick manuscripts that might have been meant more for just practice you know they're practicing doing it those yeah. smelled pretty bad <laughs> yeah they were not well, cured very well right well the fact that you can still find such beauty in it despite that shows that you're really dedicated to your scholarship <laughs> so um what were the outcomes of your archival research what did you do with the material once you were done with your trip to England Well, I ended up not finding any marginalia that really transformed my research. I thought I had for a sec. I thought I saw something that was an image, and it turned out just to be a numerical. um, I was unfamiliar with this numerical uh, abbreviation, so that was a little disappointing. But like I said, I think, well, one thing I did notice is they kept talking about one of my texts as an encyclopedia with an index. And 
an index is not something that's a more recent word, and so I couldn't quite figure out what they were talking about. And seeing the manuscript, what happened was in the margins of this text, um, Gervais of Tilbury had written down, okay, this is about Catalonia, this is about Sicily, this is about... And so he actually really did have a marginal index, and so I finally understood what that meant. And I'm sure after more research, I might have figured that out without going there, but it was just this moment of clarity, like, no, this 13th century historian really did have what is a nascent idea of an encyclopedia. He was creating an index so that you could look up a place and find out information on it. And the organization of his mind did inform my research um, because I was able to explicitly link passages and say, okay, since he was so organized, he meant for this passage to appear here in juxtaposition to this passage. And that's not necessarily a claim you can always make. Sometimes these manuscripts are randomly stitched together centuries after the fact. Um, But he was very particular about what order he wanted them to be in, and that was really informative for me. And then since I actually got to go in the cave, that helped me understand what it meant for the text to be saying, like, no one had ever gone in this cave before, and the idea of what it might mean to do this. I'm a caver, so I'm familiar with what it means to go inside of a cave, but to go into this particular cave and see what they were seeing when they're talking about this cave was very helpful to me. Um, It's a very large cavern, um, and then there's some large passageways, but it's very, very wet. And I can't imagine doing this without the current protective gear we have and the current lighting system. And so that sort of really made me appreciate how very brave. They talk in these manuscripts about how much courage it took to explore these places and that just really made me think very deeply about that and appreciate that and also seeing the castle above the cave was helpful because I was not as clear about how the landscape looked and that helped me talk about it in my my research like this is what the landscape looks like the cave is a really central feature because the castle's right on top of it you can't really miss it because you know your eye is drawn to one or the other so it was helpful that's really cool. You got to go to the cave, and you actually cited like your visit to the cave uh, in the dissertation. I think I do have a footnote on it somewhere. Um, I certainly um, thanked the people who led me through the cave, and I actually was able to go to the British Caving Library, which is this uh, is this tiny little building where they have consolidated a lot of the records that they have on caves in the area and they had some fairly old records and I actually went to them that was actually how some of this archival research started I reached out to them and said okay I know about this story is there anything else you guys know is it mentioned elsewhere do you have any records and they were able to go through their accounts and they would pull up meeting notes from, so uh, there, there are cave groups and they will meet regularly and they will take minutes just like we would in any kind of other meeting. And so they were pouring through them and saying, you know, uh, Joe so-and-so mentions this reference in this manuscript and so I would go track it down and that actually helped me because they did come up with a bit of information I was unfamiliar with at the time. Huh, that's really cool. Did you gain any insight on as to the significance of these tales to the caving people? Well, it was interesting. In Castleton, this cave is a huge tourist attraction, but I was really surprised when I walked up to it. The people I was with who were leading us through um, introduced us to one of the women who is hired by... Uh, 
I, I'm not really sure which organization owns that cave. I should look that up, I guess. But um, she was already familiar with my 12th century manuscript. She was like, oh, yeah, Gervais <laughs> Tilbury. He says all these things. And she was as well-versed in the story as I was, which I hadn't encountered anyone like that. You know, this is 12th, 13th century manuscript. It's not a common knowledge, but they were very, very familiar with this history. So it informs the local history. That's awesome. Wow. Talk about embodying literature, actually getting to go to the site where it takes place and to experience all that. That would be a cool field trip if you uh, ever take a class over to England to bring them all to the cave. <laughs> oh, I proposed it in one of my job interviews. I was like, if I you know, were able to do this kind of trip, this is what I would do. Um, it would be sort of a, a material culture trip where we'd get to look at manuscripts and think about them as material things. And then we'd get to go to the cave. It was, it was an exciting idea. Maybe one day. Yeah, definitely. So um, all this research, has it changed the way you viewed what it means to be an academic? I mean, just listening to you is really cool. I'm, it's so interdisciplinary. I don't think I've heard of any other projects that really combine landscape and actually like visiting sites in the landscape like this. I actually, one of the authors I'm working with did this. She was writing about St. Patrick's Purgatory, and which is an actual pilgrimage and ends at what was once supposedly a cave site, although it may have just been a very small hole in the ground. We don't know because the Protestants got really angry at the Catholics way back when and filled it in. But the pilgrimage is still a very big thing, and it's almost exactly the same as it was in the 12th century. The path is the same, the rituals you do are the same. And so she participated. She went on the pilgrimage and she wrote up a book recounting that physical experience that she did because she was already um, writing academic pieces on the story about St. Patrick's. So I'm not the only scholar who has done this, but I do agree with her that, that she thinks that very much informed her understanding of what it means to go on a medieval pilgrimage and so she could write about it better having experienced it. It's that whole idea like does theory and practice actually collide? That Sometimes the practice is different than the theory and so it's important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Wow. Well, um, this is really also fascinating. I hope you do get to take a class someday to the cave, and maybe I'll tag along if you ever do. Um, <laughs> I love that the medievalists. Yeah, I love that the medievalists called it the devil's arse. They had, they had a good sense of humor. <laughs> I had an excellent sense of humor. It's something I always try to impress on my students. Yeah. <laughs> Um, totally can't beat all the fart jokes and Canterbury tales and stuff, right? <laughs> no, you cannot. And the penis yeah. jokes. <laughs> right, right. Well, um, let's see. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? or? No, I, I think, I, I guess maybe I could just sum it up that uh, in my experience, and I know from my friend's experience, that our archives are kind of, Unknown before we begin this, you know, this mysterious archive, and that how we find them has very much to do with what scholars we work with already. You know, this professor of mine who knew about the green children and directed me there, and then I started reading up, and I found a footnote about another story, and then I contacted the British Library, and they told me another story about that story, and yeah. it's it's actually sort of it's almost like a game of telephone in the end, uh, textual and verbal, and however else you choose to find it. And it's a fun journey to take. And if anyone listening wants to be a scholar, this is, this is part of it. Yeah. 
Great. Well, thanks, Cordelia, for sharing your story about unexpected archives with us. So uh, I guess that is a wrap for now, and uh, hope to talk for soon. <laughs>